appreciate that. Would you turn in your Bibles tonight to Ecclesiastes chapter 3? Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'll meet you over there in just a moment. Have you ever been disappointed? When I was a boy, probably about seven or eight years old, we told our parents, George and I told our parents that we wanted a train set for Christmas. And I won't tell you how we figured out that we were getting the train set for Christmas, but we found out a little bit early that there was going to be a train set under the tree for Christmas. And needless to say, we were very excited about opening that gift and setting up that train set. There was a lot of anticipation that went into that Christmas morning and the excitement of having that train set and getting it running. But you know, I think, I think that it lasted less than a day before all the carpet fibers got wound up and the electric motors on the wheels and the whole set just completely stopped working. Have you ever experienced something like that where you had a great deal of anticipation about something and it was a complete disappointment. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the last few verses, and on into Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the wise man, the preacher, is expressing his disappointment with life. He had some expectations and some hopes in the search that he began looking for meaning under the sun. But in the end of it, All of his hopes were dashed and his expectations were shattered. This is a primary feature of the book of Ecclesiastes, informing us that trying to make meaning out of life without a perspective from God is completely hopeless and leaves you with nothing but disappointment. In the section that we'll take as our text tonight, the preacher shares with us three disappointments. You might share in some of these disappointments as you hear about them, and certainly you'll understand why he says the things that he says. Look there in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. The scripture says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other." Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see 
what shall be after him. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. If all we have is a perspective under the sun, then certainly life is incredibly disappointing. The preacher, after he had lived a while and searched out wisdom and the things of this life, came to some conclusions, and here in this section, he shares with us three things that he found to be terribly disappointing about life. And I want to say to you this evening that there's many people in the world who share this perspective, and when you speak to people who don't know the Lord, they'll often mention some of these things and say, what is going on in the world? I don't understand why things are this way. The first disappointment that the wise man had was this, that justice seems impossible to find. He draws our attention to the fact in verse number 16 that when he looked in the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So when he looked to a place where he thought that there would be righteous judgment, uh, this would be the place where matters are decided, where uh, someone would hear between a couple of people and make a judgment of who is right and who is wrong. And of course, Solomon himself was accustomed to this kind of judgment, and he himself was noted for his incredible discretion and wisdom in deciding matters between two people who were disagreeing. But when he looked in the place of judgment, he said, all I see there is wickedness. Now, I'm not trying tonight to be cynical, but it is true that often we observe wickedness and inequity in a place of judgment. And it causes us to ask the question, is there any justice? In our legal system, Lady Justice is supposed to be blind. That's why she wears a blindfold. But the truth is, in too many cases, it's been established that Lady Justice is anything but blind. But rather that there are opportunities for people to sway the legal system in their favor. And if this is true in our country then you can be sure this is true in many other places. In fact, in doing a little research on this, I found a group called the Innocence Project. They've been around since the late 80s. And since 1989, this group, using DNA analysis, has been responsible for exonerating and acquitting almost 400 criminals who were falsely accused and found guilty of crimes that they actually had not done. 
And it wasn't until DNA technology was put to, put to use in their case that it was found that they actually were not guilty at all. Now, sometimes it's, it's probable that this happened because of a mistaken identity or because of a mistaken witness, but I guarantee there are times when this happened on purpose. I remember talking with Brother Nestor, and Brother Nestor was a preacher in Panama. He was trained by Brother Robert Creech, and he planted several churches during the time that he was in the ministry. But before Brother Nestor met the Lord, he lived out in the jungles of Panama, and he was known in his area as being very skilled with a chainsaw. In fact, he could take a chainsaw and use that like a sawmill and he could make raw lumber for people to be able to build houses and buildings and things like that. And because of that, Brother Nestor began to accumulate quite a bit of wealth. He became very successful as a young man, but he had an enemy. And his enemy knew some people who had power. And his enemy falsely accused Brother Nestor of crimes that he had not done. But he had no defense for himself, and so he was sent away to prison. I remember talking to Nestor, and he said to me, but that's okay. He said, because that's where I met Brother Robert. That's why I heard about the gospel. That's where I started to study the Bible, and that's where God got a hold of my heart and changed my life. You know, there is a truth that there are places where there is not justice and certainly as we look at the world today, it perplexes us when we look in places where there's supposed to be judgment, in places where there's supposed to be justice. And instead of people getting a fair trial, they get hurried through the system or shuffled through some back door and forgotten and neglected and not brought to trial for a long time. All of these are things that should cause any righteous person to say, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. Now, when we think about this, the worst part is that sometimes even the justice system can be used as a weapon against someone's enemies. And this is particularly perplexing to us when things like that happen. Now, the wise man pointed this out and he said, I saw this in the place of judgment that wickedness was there. But he saw something else. He said the place of righteousness, the place that was supposed to be a, a bastion of godliness, a, a place where uh, good things are supposed to happen, I looked there and instead there was iniquity. Now I don't know exactly what he was referring to, but it is sad that places like churches or places of worship or organizations that are supposed to be promoting the knowledge of God have at times been places where wickedness and ungodliness is promoted. These are supposed to be places where good qualities and character are on the forefront and where people are supposed to be learning about the Lord. But the truth is that sometimes these places of righteousness can be institutions of iniquity. And when this happens, it leaves many people hurting and bewildered at the consequence. How many of you know someone that was hurt in church? How many of you know someone that maybe was even abused in church? 
Their life was affected in a way that was very negative. And we say, this ought not to be. This is supposed to be a place of righteousness, but instead iniquity exists. He goes on to speak a little bit later. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, it's like he, he moves away from this subject and then he comes back to it again because it's on his mind. And he says, so I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. It is truly frightening and discouraging to consider all the oppression that takes place under the sun. Pay attention to the news cycle. See the conditions in which people are living. Our sense of justice is challenged when we read the news and especially when we find out about backroom deals, insider information, and secret ways for powerful people to accumulate incredible wealth by stepping on the backs of the people that they're supposed to serve. This causes all of us tremendous consternation. In fact, some of you may feel, even right now, about our own country that there's an incredible amount of this kind of stuff that goes on. And I know sometimes as a common citizen, I think, well, what can you do about it? How could you stop it? Honestly, the best thing that you could hope to do is to stay out of the sights of those powerful people. Just whatever they're going to do, I hope they don't notice me. I hope they don't cause me any problems. But the sad thing is there's many people not just in our country, but in many places around the world who are being oppressed. He goes on to speak about those who are being oppressed in verse number one. He says, behold the tears of such as were oppressed. These people are weeping and they're crying that they are in pain. Tonight, there are many people who are crying bitter tears of oppression as they cry themselves to sleep. They are facing incredible opposition. All over this world, there are people who are crying because some enemy has taken everything that they had. Slavery and servitude has not miraculously gone away in 2023. Tonight, there are people who are enslaved, who are forced to serve someone else, And lest you think that that's happening in other places, there are people, we are told, in our own country who are slaves, who are held against their will, doing things that they don't want to do, and no one is stopping them. This is going on in our world. He goes on to say that those who had no tears had no comforter. They had no one to plead their cause. They had no one to intercede for them. No one to step in between. No one to stop what was happening. He's looking at this situation. He says, powerful people get away with their flagrant crimes while the little guy has no one to represent or to take his case. No one's standing up for him. He's looking at all of this and he says they have no comforter. In fact, it struck him so much that he repeats it. He says twice they had no comforter. There was no one to come alongside and help them. Do you know tonight there are many people in the world who feel that this is true about them? If you were to ask them 
They would say to you in agreement, there is no man that cares for my soul. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares what happens to me. They feel as if they are oppressed and they have no comforter. He goes on to say in verse 1, on the side of their oppressors, there was power. We look at the world today and we say the people who are oppressing others are the ones who seem to have tremendous power. They have ability, they have strength, and no one can stop them. The wicked men who are oppressing have no problem getting away with what they're doing. They can launder money. They can hire someone to be a scapegoat. They can falsely accuse. They can buy off the justice system. They can do a backroom deal with powerful people and they can get their way and do whatever they want. And they do this stepping on little people. Sometimes these oppressors pretend to care about righteousness, but they only want to get something for themselves. Does this bother you when you look at the world and see things like this happening? It bothers me. It concerns me that we live in a world where it seems that there is no justice. What is his conclusion in verse 2 and 3? Because of what he's observed, because of the lack of justice, he said, I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. He said, I... I think it's better off if you've already died so you don't have to go through this. And then he thought about it some more. And in verse 3, he said, Better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that's done under the sun. He says, I'm kind of glad for the people who haven't been born yet, who haven't seen all of this mess, who haven't come into the world and their lives haven't been affected. In other words, his conclusion that he came to is this, it would be better not to live than to exist in such a world of injustice. Now tonight, I suspect that many of you would say, oh, I don't agree with that. But it's also doubtful that you've been oppressed like he was seeing. It's doubtful that you've faced the kind of oppression that he's talking about. And if you had powerful people manipulating your life and controlling you and taking away everything that you thought was valuable, you might have a different perspective. You might think in a very cynical way that it would be better not to be alive. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the right perspective. I am simply suggesting that there are people who feel this way and who think this way, who despair of life because they really don't see any way out of their situation. He does mention an eternal perspective, though, in the midst of all of this. He reminds us back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse number 17, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. The eternal perspective to this disappointment that justice seems impossible to find is simply this truth that there is an almighty God who is a righteous judge. And it may not appear that righteousness is being enacted in this world right now. And, and certainly we can't expect men to be flawless in enacting justice. They don't understand or see things clearly all the time. But there is a righteous judge who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is eternal. And one day 
He is going to bring all of these things into judgment. In other words, those who today think they're getting away with wickedness are one day going to stand before this judge. You and I are going to stand before this judge. This judgment is real. The scripture speaks about this judgment in two parts. There is a judgment of those who are lost, those who are apart from God. They will be judged at the great white throne judgment and they will be cast into the lake of fire. There is also a judgment for those who are believers, those who are God's children. That will be a judgment for the receiving of rewards to return to praise the Lord. But understand this, there is accountability in this life. We are short-sighted when we get the idea, well, there is no justice. Justice is impossible to find. And also, let me point out that God has a way of bringing people to justice even in this life. People who sin with impunity and who trample on others often face the judgment of God in this life because of what they have done So understand that though it seems justice is impossible to find, we need to make sure that we have an eternal perspective. And if we didn't have this eternal perspective, honestly, we would despair of life. We would despair of what is happening in our world because it does seem that justice is impossible to find. The second disappointment that the wise man had is found at the end of chapter 3 from verse 18 to verse 22. And it was this disappointment as he looked at life and especially at the ending of life, he observed that people were dying and he came to this conclusion, which was a tremendous disappointment to him. He said, man is no better than a beast in his death. There's no difference between a man and a dog in how they die. It seems to be exactly the same. He asks a question there in verse number 18. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men. So he's pondering. He's asking some things about the estate of the sons of men. And he wants God to manifest them. He wants men to see that they themselves are beasts. Have you ever thought about the end of life? Have you ever thought about death and what is waiting for you when life is over? How long do you expect that you have left before you face death? Have you ever done the math? The Bible says three score and ten years. Just do a little quick figuring. If you live to be 70, how much longer do you have? Some of you say, I'm in overtime. Some are closer than others. Some of you young people say, oh, well, I've got a lot of time. Oh, but remember, you're not promised three score and ten. Life is fragile. Life can end so quickly. And and what he wants us to see, what he's proposing to us is this idea that though we go about our lives as if we're going to live a long time, the truth is that the end is coming. Death is near. It's not going to be that long before this life is over. And, And what was really causing him disappointment is what follows in verse 19. He says, for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. 
Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. Now, we're going to temper this in a moment, but understand his perspective. He says, I've watched people die, and I've watched animals die, and guess what? There's no difference. They both seem to die the same way. The physical life of man and beasts is very similar. There's similar body functions, similar, similar systems that support life, that, that keep a, a man alive and an animal alive. In fact, he says they all have one breath. It's the idea that we re- rely on respiration. And if you think about it from that standpoint, think about how fragile your breath is. Your breath. If your breath ends, you're going to die very quickly. It doesn't take much to cut off your body's ability to breathe. It doesn't take a large object. It's just a small thing and your life can be snuffed out. He says it's just a, it's just a fragile thing, this this thing that we call life. We look at beasts, we look at men, they have some things in common, and that is that their lives are fragile. And in many places, life is cheap. Life is cheap. Listen, I've been places in the world where if there was a dead body laying on the ground in the the sidewalk, no one would even notice. People would barely even move out of their way to step around it or over it. It it wouldn't bother them in the least because they're so accustomed to seeing death and life is so cheap. Think about that. Life is fragile and in many places, life is cheap. Do you know tonight that man, when he dies, is not more elegant? He, He doesn't look stronger than an animal. In fact, if there's an expression of weakness, it is the reality of death. That that you can't overcome death. You can't you can't get past death. Uh, you know, and I guess maybe in the movies they try to make it look kind of elegant, like, oh wow, look at that guy. He, the way he died was so noble and so elegant. There's nothing elegant about death. It's the, it's the expiration of life. The life goes out of a body and that person no longer has any strength, no longer has any ability. The preacher is noticing that both man and animals die and in that way they are the same. Now, I do want to point out to you that clearly there's a difference between man and animals and God gives more value to man But the the preacher is wrestling with this concept that he's seen man die, he's seen animals die, and it doesn't seem like there's that much difference. Then he notices that they all go unto one place, verse 20. Now, he's not referring to an eternal state here. He's pointing out the fact that when a man dies or an animal dies, their, their body just goes to the ground. Most of the time, we bury them. We, we try to dispose of the body. We try to, to put it somewhere out of the way so that we're not going to see it. Uh, we try to treat a man's body with some element of respect and honor because he's a man. We try to do the same thing with an animal. We try to treat it with some kind of respect and move it out of the way. But understand, he says, whether you're a man or an animal, when you die, 
You just go in the ground. You return to dust. He talks about how basically our bodies are going to decompose. They're going to go into the ground and they're going to go back to dust. Now, he does point out that there's a difference in what happens afterward. The spirit of man goeth upward. The spirit of the beast goeth downward to the earth. And the idea there is that man has a future destination, but an animal does not necessarily have a future destination. An animal is here, it exists, and then it's gone. But men have a soul and a spirit. They have more than just the body, and it's important to remember that. Then he asked this question, who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? In other words, how is man going to be able to look forward into eternity and see what is on the other side? From the preacher's perspective under the sun, it seems like there's no way to know. Just like if you were to walk around the streets and talk with people, just pull a number of people and ask them what happens after you die you're going to run into a significant number of people who are going to say something like, oh, well, you know, you just go back in the ground, just like an animal. You're just going to to go away. I guess you're just going to turn back to dust. And that's the conclusion that that Solomon is coming to. He's, He's looking at death and he says, this is so disappointing because after you've lived, then what? What is after this? His conclusion is this. There doesn't seem to be any difference between man and animals. So, why is man so much more important? Both die, and both of them have their bodies decay. So, what's the deal? What's the difference between man and animal? Now, the eternal perspective is only hinted at in this passage. It's not stated explicitly. In fact, he doesn't really come to some strong conclusions about this until later in the book. But we would be remiss if we didn't point this out. Because we do know the truth of what the Bible says. That animals die and cease to exist, but man has an eternal soul and will spend an eternity in either heaven or hell. This life pales in comparison to the value of eternity. If all we see is under the sun and this life, then really how disappointing is life? I mean, think about that. You you have maybe a brief window of strength and vitality and energy and all that sort of thing, and then pretty soon your body starts to go the other direction. And slowly but surely you wend your way on towards death, And then you get to the end, and that's it. And if that's all we had to look forward to, how disappointing life would be. Praise God, we have something more to look forward to. Praise God, we have life in Christ. We have an eternity to look forward to. And even this, as a Christian, praise God, I can look forward to a glorified body. I'm not going to be stuck with this same body that has so many difficulties with it, but I'm going to be remade in the image of Christ one day. So is man better than a beast in his death? Well, from the perspective of under the sun, no, he's not. From the perspective of God, there's definitely something more to man than an animal. The third truth that was so disappointing to him, which caused him tremendous disappointment, is found there towards the end of our passage in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And it's this. As he was observing, he said accomplishment. 
is a dead end. Now, what do most people live for? Most people live to accomplish something. They live to to make some contribution, to to complete some kind of a work, to, to be able to say, I did that, I made that, I contributed to that. And so he looks at this in verse number four. He said, I considered all travail and every right work. And then he said, this is so disappointing because travail and every right work seems positive and wholesome. It seems like that would be worth living for, to accomplish something. How many of you know someone who says, I just want to make my life count for something. I just want to do something that would contribute to society. Many people around us are trying to make something of their lives. They're trying to accomplish worthwhile goals and gain something for themselves as well as for their neighbor. They're not merely selfish. They're hoping to contribute somehow to society, to the better good of mankind. They're working hard and they're going after things that he characterizes as right works. There's many good pursuits that people have. Even unsaved people have some good pursuits that they go after with the work that they do. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that there's people who invest their lives in ways that enrich us that bless our lives, and they may not have the right eternal perspective of all of that, but they really want to contribute to society. They really want to bring good into the world. They want to make a mark in the world. And so he says, this is happening, but notice what happens. I mean, you do all this thinking, I'll I'll get respect. Uh, People will will honor me. They'll They'll, they'll see what I've done and they'll, they'll say, boy, good job. I'm so glad you did this. What did he say he saw? He said that for all this travail and all the right works that people did, that for this, a man is envied of his neighbor. He said, all I saw was the people who were working hard and the people who were producing and doing something for society There were other people who looked at them who thought, I didn't get that. Why didn't I get a privilege like that? Why didn't I get an opportunity like that? Why why can't I have that much money? Why can't I have this this much land? Why can't I have those kind of resources? Do, Do you see this kind of stuff in the world today? I mean, you see somebody get... Uh, make some progress in their life and they get to a position and there's other people who are behind them that didn't get that position who said, well, it must be nice. If I got that privilege, then I would be able to reach that place too. Do you hear this kind of stuff? Or, you know, somebody gets a new house and somebody else says, well, it must be nice. I wish I could get a new house. Somebody gets a new car and somebody says, oh, yeah, must be nice. I wonder who they ripped off to get that car. I'm such a cynical spirit. And the truth is, I don't know if you realize this, but you live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And most of the people in the rest of the world envy people who live here and wish that they could have what you have. And in many places, it's becoming increasingly popular to say, you shouldn't have the things that you have, which is what envy is. And and many of you say, Wait, wait, wait a second. I, I mean, I worked hard. I, I, I legitimately labored for the things that I have. Don't, don't blame it on me. But this is how the world is. People who have less 
envy people who have more and assume that they got more by doing something that they shouldn't have done. It's unfortunate, but men are wired to compare. They see what someone else has, and then they complain that it isn't fair. That person got an unfair advantage. I deserve more than him. Why didn't I get uh, this or that? And why is that person getting paid more than me? I mean, this, is, this happens in the job site, right? You, you have a bunch of people working together and everybody goes around and says, how much are you getting paid? How much are you getting paid? How much are you getting paid? I, I want to know how, what you're getting paid. What? You started for that much? You listen, when I started, I only got this much. In fact, you're already making almost as much as I am. This isn't fair. You hear this kind of stuff? How about every day of our life? Every day of our life. And Solomon observed this. He said, such a disappointment to me. Here are people trying to produce something, people trying to contribute, and all that comes about is envy. He's not saying it explicitly, but he's hinting at this. Maybe it'd be better just to not try to produce anything. Don't, don't try. I mean, why, why bother? If, if all you're going to get is somebody envying you, what's the point? If people are just going to be upset with you. But then as he's thinking about this, he says in verse 5, there's another kind of a person. There's the people who travail and they do every right work and they're being envied. But he says, then there's the fool in verse 5. This description is so powerful. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. What an interesting description. He's sitting in his easy chair with his legs propped up and his hands folded together. The idea is I'm not doing a thing. I'm not lifting a finger. I'm not going to do anything at all. And then he's taking big bites out of his own flesh. Now, He's using a metaphor. He's not literally saying that this guy is biting himself and eating his own flesh. He's pointing out that this man, while he's being lazy and folding his hands and doing nothing, he's not contributing to anything. And in the process, he's bringing destruction into his own life. This lazy fool is always blaming someone else for his troubles. Why don't I have this? Why don't I have that? Why can't I have this thing? Why can't I have a nice car? Why can't I have this? Well, maybe you got to get out of your chair and get your hands unfolded and go do some work. That's a four-letter word in our society, isn't it? To a lot of people, they say, I should just get paid to exist. I should just receive a paycheck because I'm here on the world. Sadly, this man is his own worst enemy. It's two ends of a spectrum. The man who's the workaholic, who is disappointed because his work is producing nothing but envy from his neighbor, and the man who does nothing and in the process destroys his own life. He's looking at all of this and he says it's all disappointment. His conclusion is this in verse 6. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. And I want to point out to you that there's a great deal of wisdom in verse number six. 
It would be better for you and I to have just a little bit with quietness. Not to be bothered. Just let me live my life. I mean, think about it. The more that you accumulate, the more you have to protect. The more you have to make sure that nobody's going to steal it. The more you have to be worried about whether somebody's going to take it from you. Uh, Listen, if you've got five houses, you can only live in one. So what's going to happen to the houses that you're not in? What's going to happen to the properties where you're not able to be present? The more that you have, the more you have to worry about. So he points out in verse 6 that it would be better for all of us if we had just enough and we were just quiet. I, I want to say this. There's a great value to living a quiet life, just a peaceful life. Being left alone. I like to say this about politicians. I prefer it when they're gridlocked. Because then, hopefully, they can't make any decisions that will affect our lives. So, get gridlocked. That's great. Just leave us alone. Let us live our lives. Let us do the things that we need to do. Let let us have some quietness. Right? It's better to have just a little. In fact, this is a New Testament truth where the Lord tells us that we ought to be content with such things as we have. There's great danger in always trying to get more, more, more. In fact, as you accumulate more, 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 you might find that all that really ends up happening is more and more people get envious of what you have. And try to figure out a way to get it from you. To take it away. So he says, accomplishment is a dead end. Now, an eternal perspective is this. That you and I don't live for this life. God tells us that we ought to be careful not to lay up treasures here on the earth. Where moth and rust doth corrupt. And where thieves break through and steal. But we instead should be laying up our treasures in heaven. Because our treasures in heaven are secure. Our treasures in heaven are safe with the Lord. We can be content with what God gives us in this life. And we ought to take as many of our resources as we can and put them to work laying up treasures in heaven. Because that's where the greatest yield is. Now, the wise man was disappointed with life. You say, what does this have to do with us besides the fact that we're studying through the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, I want you to think about it. How many people do you talk to who express similar ideas? People who say, there's no justice in the world. People are being oppressed. It's not fair. Why are things this way? How about people who look at the world and they say, what's the difference between men and animals? I mean, it seems like you just die and that's it. You go in the ground, you turn back to dust. What's the difference between a man and an animal? You talk to people like this all the time. Or people who say, what's the point? I work and work and work. I, I, I try to better myself. I bring home a little bit more money for my family and then the government finds out about it and they raise my tax bracket. You say, who's the biggest robbers in our country? It's the government. 
They do it legally. They take the money from the citizens. And what do they use it for? Who knows? I mean, there's a lot of people. I, I was talking to somebody the other day. And uh, he said, I became conservative in my politics when I got my first paycheck. And I realized how much money the government took. <laughs> he said, I, I was raised a different way, but I changed my mind when I saw that. You know, if all we had was this life, if all we had was the resources in this world, what would we have to look forward to? And honestly, there's people all around us who are bent out of shape about a lot of these issues, and the reason is because they don't have an eternal perspective. They have an under-the-sun perspective. And as Christians, you know what? We need to lift our eyes. We need to see that there's a God in heaven, a God in heaven who's able to make sense out of injustice, a God in heaven who is able to ascribe value to man that is far greater than a beast, and a God in heaven who is able to make our life count for something more than just this world and this life. There really is something worth living for, but you're going to have to get your eyes out from under the sun And you're going to have to see the perspective that God wants you to have.